invite you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 11. Exodus chapter 11, I'll read the entirety of the chapter. Exodus 11, beginning in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these, your servants, shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you, and after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we humble ourselves before your holy word now. And we ask in the name of our Lord that you would instruct us, make us to hear and not be hard-hearted towards your truths. Lord, we pray that your spirit would instruct us as well, teach us, open the eyes of our hearts to see and receive what you have for us. We thank you, Father, that you've given us your word. Help us now to hear it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a funny thing that happened on the way to this sermon. Um, On Thursday night, thereabouts, I intended that I'd most likely be preaching all of chapter 11. Uh, By Friday, midday, I thought maybe I'd preach through chapter 12. By end of day Friday, I thought I'll preach through chapter 11 through the middle part of chapter 13. Um, about 6 a.m. this morning, I thought, no, I'm going to go back to chapter 11. And by the end of the first service, I preached through the first three verses of chapter 11. Uh, so um, forgive me if this is a little meandering, um, but we'll be doing our best to work through the first three verses of chapter 11. And then if God allows, we'll speed up a bit next week. Uh, The book of Exodus has continually served us with the theme 
that God is in control of all things. He is a God who possesses all power, all authority, and the book of Exodus continues to show us this truth. Chapter 11 begins with the Lord speaking to Moses and giving him instructions about what's going to happen and then giving him instructions about what to say to Pharaoh. The end of chapter 10 of Exodus concluded with the plague of darkness followed by Pharaoh telling Moses, get away from me, it says in chapter 10, verse 28. Take care never to see my face again, for on the day you see my face, you shall die. And Moses agreed to that. He said, as you say, I will not see your face again. Pharaoh thinks that he has the authority to say, this is the end of the conversation, story over. Moses agrees to it, but we have to remember that the insertion of chapters is a more recent invention for us, and the text really jumps straight from chapter 10 into chapter 11, and the Lord begins to speak to Moses. The conversation is not over, according to Yahweh. There's more to be said. Pharaoh tries to end it. The Lord continues to hold this conversation because he is in control of all things. Pharaoh does not get to send the end, set the end limit. In the display of his sovereign power, the Lord God has sent these nine plagues that we've seen so far in the book of Exodus, and they've been increasing in their severity. Among the reasons that he sends them is because Pharaoh has possessed a hard heart. In chapter 8, Verse 32, after the plague of flies, it says, Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. This means that Pharaoh's heart was so stubborn that he refused to heed the warning from these plagues and submit himself to the God who was executing these plagues. He tried to maintain this control in this power over the situation by not yielding. He would not allow Yahweh the pleasure of gaining or possessing victory. And so he hardened his heart and basically said, no, this is not going to go the way that God wants it to go. I will maintain control. And we think this is insane. You think that the plague of blood of the Nile would have convinced Pharaoh or the gnats or the flies or the boils or the livestock, but in all of this, he refuses to concede victory to Yahweh. It means when he hardens his heart that perhaps he concedes, well, Yahweh won this round, but it's not over yet. And he digs in his heels and refuses to yield any ground to Yahweh. And in a sense, Pharaoh would think that at least he possesses control over this one realm where he can decide whether he's going to yield or not yield, and he refuses to yield. But even in that, Pharaoh could not overcome the Almighty God in the realm of his own heart. After the sixth plague, chapter 9, verse 12, after the boils have come upon the people, 
and the beasts of Egypt, it says, the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. This meant not only Pharaoh would not yield to Yahweh, but now as Yahweh hardens the heart of Pharaoh, he could not yield. Pharaoh seemed to maintain that illusion of control. And yet in the end, Yahweh is in complete control. And this returns us to that theme that we see again and again through this book, the complete control of God. He is the one who is enacting these plagues. He doesn't come to the end of one plague and see how Pharaoh is going to respond and think, you know what, he might just need one more. He's not been operating on that basis. From the very start, the Lord has had a set amount of plagues that he is going to bring upon Egypt, and it will not be concluded until he is done with all he has to show And in order to show that he is in control and not Pharaoh, he hardens Pharaoh's heart until God is done showing his plagues. He continues on until every last drop of his signs and wonders that he intends to reveal were displayed. Once the Lord gets a ball rolling, nobody on earth can stop it. Picture it a bit like a mudslide. You've probably seen those Pictures or videos of a side of a hill just kind of disengaging and hurtling down the side of the mountain. It doesn't come to a house and say, you know, I was planning on going straight, but I think I'll take a hard right. Mudslides continue to go, and nothing will impede them. Our Lord, when he has a plan, knows exactly where he is going, and he will continue with no impediment to bring his plan to conclusion. And God is going somewhere in all of this. One of the reasons I wanted to preach through into half of chapter 13 was because this final plague, the 10th plague, really is contained in the chapters 11, 12, and half of 13. It's all of a unit. And it shows us where God has been going all along. He's been hurtling towards this point of bringing about the death of the firstborn in Egypt. He's he's been doing that in order to reveal both his judgment on Egypt for killing the male children of, of Israel, but also to reveal a plan that he has to spare Israel through the slaughtering of a lamb the taking of the lamb's blood, painted it on the doorpost so that when the destroyer passes by, they'll see the blood and not enter Israel's houses and kill their children. And this will result in a feast that Israel is to have year after year commemorating that night that the Lord passed by them and did not enact judgment on them because they were covered with the blood of a lamb. This, of course, is a shadow that is cast from the cross of Jesus Christ backwards into the Old Testament because it's all leading us to the ultimate plan that God has to send His Son where His blood will be painted on the wood of the cross so that anybody who's covered with His blood will be spared judgment by God. And so all of these plagues don't just have to do with one man, Pharaoh, or Moses, or one nation, Israel, or the enemy, 
Egypt. It's all leading us towards the ultimate consummation of God's plan, which is the revelation of His salvation in Jesus Christ. This plague will set the historical precedent and prove to be the theological foreshadowings of the greatest act of love in the giving of God's only Son. All of this judgment, all of these plagues, all of these horrific scenes are ultimately God's plan to reveal the precision of His wisdom in giving salvation through the blood of His Son. And so as we consider uh, just these first opening verses, we keep in mind that God is in complete control, not just in the period of the Exodus, not just in Egypt, not just in Israel, but He's sovereign in all of history to bring about His perfect plan of redemption for sinners. And so let's take a few moments and dig into these few verses here in Exodus chapter 11 to see the complete control of the Lord. And we take heed to this because it brings for believers, a great amount of comfort to be reminded that there is nothing that can overthrow God's perfect plan. And if you remember that God is for you, completely and totally for you in Jesus Christ, and that all of His power is wielded to enact His goodness that results in your glorification in Christ when He returns, you will take heart as you go through the difficulties of this life because you know that there is a God who has the power to work all things together for good. Let's consider the complete control of the Lord. You can see it just there in the opening verse of chapter 11. As Yahweh speaks to Moses, he says, Yet one more plague will I bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. We see God's complete control in the fact that his enemies will not win. Pharaoh will not win, nor will any other enemies of the Lord. I enjoy watching sports um, occasionally, uh, not as much now as I did several years ago, but I enjoy watching it because that's the whole premise of sports is you don't know who is going to win. If you have ever recorded a game, a big game, and you don't get to watch it until later, what's the first thing you say to somebody who starts to talk about the game? You say, stop it. Don't tell me the score. Because you want to find out who wins, and as soon as you hear who wins, it spoils the whole thing. Uh, this past month or in December and November, was the World Cup, and that's my favorite sporting event of all, is the World Cup. It's so exciting because you have all these teams from around the world battling together. You don't know who's going to win each game. You don't know who's going to win the finals. It's thrilling. It's the saga of sports. As you enter into it not knowing who's going to win, that's why people keep coming back by droves week after week to see another game. Isn't it just the same thing? No, because you don't know who's going to win this one. 
And so it tells its own story, and it's exciting because you don't know who's going to win. Some games are lopsided, and you have a pretty good idea. So, but sometimes there's those Cinderella teams that come out of nowhere, and you cheer for them because they're the underdog, and they make a run through to the finals, and you cheer them on. If you watch the final match of the World Cup, it was a thriller between Argentina and France. And if you haven't watched it yet, I won't spoil it for you. But it had come down to the very last moment, and hearts are pounding, wondering who is going to win. It's dramatic. It's sensational. We know who's going to win when it comes to the Lord. It's dramatic in another sense. It's not dramatic because we don't know who's going to win. It's because we're in the thick of things in this life. And you encounter people and nations like Pharaoh and like Egypt. You encounter situations that seem so opposed to God winning that it almost makes it look like God's the underdog. And you wonder, can God really pull this off? This one's impossible. God can't get this one. He just, this, this, is, this is bad. He might lose this one. We look around our world and we think, about the politics of things, and we think things don't go the way that we would want, or we think about just the global situation and the wars and rumors for wars, and we think, oh, this is bad, this is going to end horribly, everything's going to be upset, it's not going to end up well, or we think about our own personal life with regard to relationships that are broken, we think this can't possibly be a victory for God, this isn't going to be an outcome that's good, or even our own health, we think this, this one has God beat. He can't come through on this one. Certainly not. This one has put God to the test. The universal testimony of Scripture is that God will never, never, never lose. His enemies will never, never, never win. The drama for us ought not to be whether God is going to win or lose. We know he is going to win. It is the excitement of waiting to see him come through with the victory. God's enemies will not win. Pharaoh said, end of conversation, chapter 10. God says, no, not end of conversation, One more plague I will bring upon Pharaoh and Egypt. And then he says, afterward, he will let you go from here. For the Israelites, you'd think, wouldn't it have been enough after plague one for him to let us go? That would have been plenty. Maybe plague two plagues would be enough. Three plagues is stretching it, but nine plagues. It's a bit long to wait, don't you think? God's not in a rush. He's always planned ten plagues. And he was going to get there. God is in complete control, which is evidenced by the fact that his enemies will never win. Not only will God's enemies never win, but God's enemies serve God's purposes. That's a 
big statement because if anybody is opposed to God's purposes, it's his enemies. But here we've just said that God's enemies serve God's purposes. Not only do they not win, but they also prove to be servants of the Lord in some sense. Here's what I mean. It will be Pharaoh through his hardened heart driving the people of Israel out of Egypt in such a frenzy that they get pushed to the Red Sea where God will open up the sea to let the people pass through on dry ground and then God will cover it up again over the Egyptian army. That happened ultimately because God ordained it to happen and secondarily because Pharaoh in his hardened heart was so full of pride that he sent his army out after the Israelites. And in the end, that very moment proved to be one of the greatest displays the world has ever seen of the power of God. And in the end, Pharaoh proved to be a servant of the Lord in bringing about this circumstance where God got great glory over Pharaoh. There are many enemies of the Lord that are in this world. But they will have to reckon with chapter 11, verse 1, the second half, that says, when he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. In a sense, God gives credit to Pharaoh for being the instrument through which the Israelites get completely released. That's not a credit that Pharaoh wants to his name. But he ends up being a servant of the Lord. Unwittingly so, but still a servant. God's enemies are many. The chief of God's enemies, of course, is Satan. Satan end up serving God's purposes. The answer has to be yes. And there's a couple of illustrations of this. One of the Prime illustrations is from the book of Job. That's the story of the man who is righteous. He served God, offered sacrifices to God. He is also prosperous. And so one day Satan comes before God and says to God that basically Job serves God because God pays him off. God has bought Job's worship with all of the prosperity he's given him. So God gives Satan permission to go and remove all of the prosperity from Job's life. And Satan does it under the premise that Job will curse God when that happens. Job doesn't curse God. And so Satan comes back before God and says, well, he still has his health. At which point God gives Satan permission to go and afflict Job directly and take his health from him. And he's afflicted so badly that his skin just breaks out in sores and he scrapes the sores away with pieces of broken pottery. And that's the moment the Lord gets glory because Job declares, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And Satan unwittingly serves the purposes of God 
by providing an example of a man who serves God not primarily because of all the gifts he gives him, but because God deserves the worship. Many other illustrations we could use, but perhaps the prime one would be that horrible event of the betrayal of Jesus. Luke chapter 22, verse 3 says that Satan entered into Judas. This, of course, is the disciple who betrays Jesus. That happens in part because Satan controls Judas in this wicked act of his. Judas is certainly culpable for it, but there's an element of satanic influence that happens And because of this betrayal, Jesus is arrested. Because of the arrest, Jesus is put on trial. Because of the trial, Jesus is condemned to death. Because he's condemned to death, he's lifted up on a cross. Because he's lifted up on a cross, he dies. And because he dies, the floodgates of God's mercy are opened up to the world so that anyone who believes in him can be saved and receive the forgiveness of sins. The Satan serve God's purposes? Yes, because God is in complete control, not because Satan wants to. Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, describing the cross, says that God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. That's referring to in him at the cross of Calvary. Satan tries his best to destroy the Son of God, and in the end, it ends up being the means by which God brings about redemption for sinners. The enemies of God in their evil scheming cannot overcome the ultimate purposes of God. They will not win, and in their ragings, they will find themselves unwitting servants to bring about God's purposes. In Isaiah chapter 10, Verse 5, God describes the nation Assyria, which was a wicked nation, but God calls them the rod of my anger. And then he describes them in Isaiah chapter 10, verse 15, an axe, basically, that he wields to hew down whomever he wills. You can also consider the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Matthew 22, as they come to Jesus, these are the quintessential enemies of Jesus, and they come to trap Jesus. They've come to despise him, and they want to bring him down. And so it says in Matthew 22:15 that the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. They want to paint Jesus into a corner that he can't get out of. So they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. They butter him up, try to coax him into a relaxed state so that he can just indict himself. Then they say in Matthew 22, verse 17, Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And with that, they would say, gotcha. 
Because whichever way Jesus answered, he would be condemned before the people. If he says, yes, pay taxes to Caesar, it would make him look like he's a friend of Caesar's, and the Jews would not like that. If he says, don't pay taxes, it would make him look like he's an enemy of Caesar, and they can stick the Romans on him. They think they've got him. They're so clever. But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? I don't think Jesus would say this, but he could have said, gotcha. (laughs) Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. His answer is so brilliant that we're still marveling at it 2,000 years later. And in verse 22, it says, When they heard it, they marveled. They had not painted him in a corner. In fact, it says they left him and went away. They tried to trap Jesus, and in trying to trap him, it gave an opportunity for Jesus to show his magnificent, brilliant wisdom. God is glorified in that moment through his Son, and the enemies who sought to trap Jesus, end up proving to be serving God's purposes, in a sense, by revealing the greatness of Jesus. So, with Pharaoh, back in Exodus chapter 11, when he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. And that's what God has been aiming at all along, is to have the Israelites come out of Egypt so completely that they will be freed to go into the promised land. And Pharaoh, in his pride and arrogance, will pursue the Israelites to the decimation of the Egyptian army, and Israel will be totally set free from Egypt. God is in such complete control that even God's enemies serve God's purposes. God's enemies will not win, God's enemies serve God's purposes, and these both reveal God's complete control, but we also see his complete control in the fact that God's people will inherit riches through his grace. The Lord instructs Moses in verse 2, Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. Not only are the Israelites being sent away from Egypt completely, when they go, they are going to plunder the Egyptians. Now, typically, when you think about plundering, it's an army going into another nation and totally destroying them and then taking what's left over. In this case, it's the Egyptians or the Israelites going up to their neighbor's door, knocking on the door and say, excuse me, do you have any gold or silver? (laughs) And if we did that and went up to our neighbors and knocked on their door and said, excuse me, 
Uh, do you have any gold or silver to give me? They close the door, lock it, and call the police. But in this case, the Egyptians, it says in verse 3, that the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And so the Egyptians, as these Israelites come to the door, open the door and say, you know what? I kind of like you guys that have brought havoc and destruction on our nation through these nine plagues through your God. And I would like to give you some of the gold for which you ask. They've been given favor. Why? Because the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. When you're not God's enemy and you belong to God through His grace, you will find that you inherit all that He could possibly give you through His goodness. The Israelites leave Egypt with the gold and silver of the Egyptians because God has bestowed favor on them in the sight of the Egyptians. Now, this is not to say that our world is going to like us. But this is to reflect on the promise of Romans 8, that he who did not spare his own son, but graciously gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Jesus promises that his people will inherit the earth. There's a plundering that's going to come. God is going to give us all things because of his grace, not because we deserve it. Israel wasn't better than Egypt. That's crystal clear through the rest of the Old Testament. They just received God's favor and grace. That's what set them apart. It was God's kindness. And so as God exercises his complete control, he sees fit to bestow on his people all of the good things that he has to give them. In the case of the Egyptians or the Israelites, it's leaving Egypt with gold and silver. In the case of our situation, not expecting that we're going to have huge bank accounts here on earth. It's expecting that God gives us riches in heaven, namely eternal life and the freedom from all pain, sorrow, suffering in this world and only perfect, unending joy before God in heaven. It says in chapter 11, verse 3, Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. And here we have another display of God's complete control because he has taken this man Moses, who you remember fled from Egypt as an exile after murdering an Egyptian and trying to deliver his people. And he wandered effectively in the wilderness for 40 years in the land of Midian. And after 40 years, when Moses turned 80, he sees God at the burning bush, and God commissions Moses to go into Egypt and deliver his people out of bondage and slavery. 
And Moses says, basically, that's a great idea, but leave me out of it. And so Moses wants no part of this and is reluctant. Finally, he yields in some small degree to go where God wants him to go. But even at first, as he goes into Egypt, he finds discouragement because as he delivers his first message to Pharaoh, Pharaoh afflicts the Israelites by telling them to make more bricks with less material. And Moses is discouraged. He thinks, is this how my ministry is going to go? What has the Lord done? But as you work through the book of Exodus and the rest of the first five books of the Bible, you see the growth of this man. You see the growth of a man who serves the Lord. A man who stops relying on his own judgment of the situation and eventually yields to whatever God wants. Because that's what Moses has become at this point. The Lord speaks to Moses and tells him what to say to Pharaoh, and Moses says that to Pharaoh. Moses is told by God what to do. Raise your hands to the sky, lift up your staff over the land, strike the land, and that's what Moses does. And Moses has given up being in control of his life and has yielded to the God who controls all things. He stopped worrying about what Pharaoh thinks and starts just doing what God says. And what happens? The man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. Seems as though a result of being completely obedient to Yahweh results in in Moses being exalted. Again, I don't want anybody to mistake what I'm saying. This is not to suggest that if you serve God perfectly, everybody's going to like you. Consider Jeremiah, who did what God said and said what God told him to say. He ended up being thrown into a pit. Might happen to you. But what we can be guaranteed is that when you submit yourself to God, that is the only path to find the exaltation that God will give to his people. I'm reminded of Philippians chapter 2 and the Lord Jesus Christ who humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, because of Christ's obedience and submission to the plan of his Father, therefore God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Pharaoh is now recognizing that this man Moses has to be greater than he. Everybody in Egypt is recognizing this, not because there's something great about Moses, but because Moses has a great God. And that should be the testimony of our life. A life completely yielded to the sovereign God to do what he says to do, to say what he tells us to say. It may bring lots of hardships this side of heaven, but we are after a treasure where neither moth nor rust destroy. 
So as we have to reckon with this sovereign God who has complete control over his enemies, his enemies even prove to be his servants, who beckons his people to follow him, and as they do, they will find the favor poured out on them. We reckon with our own life. Where has God brought you? Our life certainly isn't going according to the script that we would want it to go according to. But you still have a sovereign God who has not lost his grip on your life. And he calls you to submit to him, to trust him, because he's powerful. And he will even make your enemies end up serving his plan. There's a story that John Newton tells. John Newton is the um, author of Amazing Grace, the former slave trader turned pastor. And uh, he writes amazingly tender letters. And he wrote this letter to a young pastor who was struggling with God's providence in his life. This young pastor was wishing things were different than they were. And John Newton wrote to this young pastor telling him a quick story, saying that there was a master who had a servant, and the master told the servant to go on a basically a business trip for a length of time and do the master's business. And the servant said, No, I I can't do that. I've got too much going on at home. I don't I don't have the time to leave. My family, I don't have the time to leave my business. I don't have the time to leave the things that are on my plate right now. And the master said to the servant, you take care of my business abroad and I'll take care of your business at home. And we're reminded when we have a sovereign God who is in complete control, we can yield control to him over all things. And just submit ourselves to the things that he wants us to do. Be about the Lord's business. He'll take care of yours. You have a sovereign God who cares for you and will wield all of his power for your good. Submit your life to him. Let's pray. Father, we recognize your absolute authority. Father, I hope that all of us are encouraged that there's nothing that can come ultimately against your plans and purposes. Father, I'd ask you, ask you that you would give us humble hearts to accept your complete control over all things and make us willing servants who do your bidding. Lord, that's all we are. Your servants saved by grace purchased by the blood of Christ. You've been good to us. You are our faithful Father. We love you and praise you. Help us to be faithful to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.